We're going to look at a passage of Scripture that I've been living in or camping in the last several weeks. We discussed this passage and even acted it out a few weeks ago at our Hymns and Words Special Edition Kids Night. It's found in Acts chapter 12. If you have your printed Bible or your electronic device, you can turn to uh, Acts chapter 12, but the words will also be on the screen for us so we can read it as we go. And I'll be breaking in quite often to give you some explanation and description about what's happening in this particular text. We don't just take a verse or a chapter or a part of a chapter out of its context. And we know that the book of Acts, after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, gave us four different, but to some degree similar, accounts of the life of Jesus. That's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels are. They're biographies of Jesus' ministry. And so now Jesus has been crucified, resurrected, praise the Lord, and ascended back into heaven. Jesus promised his followers that he would send the Holy Spirit. And one of the main reasons Jesus did that, let me think about it. The Holy Spirit has always existed. We believe in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. And we believe that God is eternal. So therefore, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have always existed from the very beginning. Well, there wasn't a beginning. He always was. Does that boggle your mind? It boggles my mind. Always was, always will be. No end. You know, we have parameters on life. We think, you know, we were born here and we'll die here. But eternity, no beginning, no end. Wow. So anyway, Jesus promised that if he went back to heaven, he would send his Holy Spirit. The disciples didn't realize it, but that's good news. I mean, they, they had been with Jesus for three years. They loved him. They followed him. They listened to his teaching. They helped him. And, and now he's saying, I'm going away. But here's the good news. It was. It was a bad news, good news situation. Bad news is, I'm going away. Good news is, I'll send my Holy Spirit because I can only be in one place at one time. As a physical human being, I can only be one place at a time. But the Holy Spirit can be anywhere and everywhere. He can be with us right here in Xenia Nazarene today, and He is. And He can be over at Emmanuel Baptist and over at Ahop and over at Apex and any other church anywhere else. He can be with every single Christian wherever they are. Now that boggles your mind too, doesn't it? Talk about eternity. Now we're talking about the omnipresence, the, the everywhere presence of God not to mention his omnipotence, that's his all-powerfulness, and his omniscience, the fact that he knows everything. God, through his Holy Spirit, is everywhere. He is omnipresent. And so Jesus said, if I go away, I'll send the Holy Spirit. And so we have this fifth book of the New Testament, which technically is called the Acts of the Apostles. Now, some Bible scholars say we really ought to call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit through his Apostles right? Because the Holy Spirit was the one at work in their lives, enabling them to do what they did. And so we have this book of Acts that gives us a chronicle or a narrative of so many things that happened after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Now we're up to chapter 12 and King Herod is on a rampage. Now this is probably not the same King Herod that was alive and ruling when Jesus was born. Remember that dastardly guy, King Herod? who 
tried to trick the wise men into telling them where Jesus was. And when they tricked him back, he said, well, I'll just kill all the baby boys under the age of two down in that whole area around Bethlehem. I mean, you talk about someone who was ruthless and godless, it was King Herod. This Herod is a descendant of his, and it's almost as if every generation got worse. So this Herod wasn't any better. And he was a people pleaser. He was very insecure in his rule. And so he was a people pleaser. And he did this. About that time, all these great things that are happening in the early church, the apostles are working hard. People are being added to the church every day. New believers are being won to Christ, as we would say in this day. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Now, we don't know exactly what persecution was, but it probably involved not just saying, you shouldn't do that anymore. It was arrest and put in prison, sometimes tortured or beaten, sometimes executed. And we see that that's the truth because look at the next verse. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Now, there's two important Jameses, if that's a word. There's two important guys named James in the New Testament. One is this James, who was the brother of John. Remember James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, the ones whose mother came to Jesus and said, Lord, if there's any way you could work this out, when you come in your kingdom, could one of my boys sit on your left and the other on your right? Oh, I did that wrong left on this left and this right and Jesus said you don't know what you're asking it's not for me to say who sits where I'll be on the throne next to God the father and and he'll decide that but we've heard of Peter James and John remember the little Sunday school song Peter James and John and sailboat out on the deep blue sea Peter James and John they were the three that Jesus took a little farther into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with him. Peter, James, and John, they're the three that got to go up onto the Mount of Transfiguration when that miracle occurred. This James, the brother of John, was put to death by the sword by King Herod as an example. Now we know he's not the first Christian martyr, Stephen was, back in chapter 8, I think it is, of Acts. But here we have in chapter 12, James, one of the original 12 disciples, one of the three closest disciples to Jesus, he is put to death for his faith. And Herod finds out that this pleases the people. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, the the religious people of his day, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. Now, why is Peter so important? Well, do you remember when Jesus was sitting with his disciples one night and he said, who do people say that I am? And his disciples offered some answers. Well, some say that you're this prophet or that prophet or this special person. And, and they discussed it for a while. And then Jesus kind of looked around the whole deal and said, who do you say that I am? You've been following me. You've been with me. You know me. Who do you say that I am? And I think it was like one of those questions. You ever been there in school when the teacher asks a question? And it seems kind of obvious, but you're afraid to say the answer because you think, Is that really what he's wanting? Will I make a fool out of myself if I give that answer? Do I know what I'm talking about? Well, Peter didn't go through that dilemma in his mind. He just blurted it out. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Wow, what a confession. Because the word Christ isn't just Jesus' last name. (laughs) 
First name Jesus, last name Christ from Nazareth, you know, social security number, all that. No. <laughs> Jesus, really his name would have been Jesus Bar Joseph because Bar meant son of. Jesus, son of Joseph from the town of Nazareth. But Peter said, you are the Christ. And the word Christ means the Messiah, the one sent from God. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Why was that such a big deal? Because Peter and the other disciples and all the people that were religious in their day were Jews. And they were waiting for their Messiah. The Messiah talked about in the Old Testament that God would send to redeem Israel, to free them from captivity, to set them up as the ones who would rule the world, basically. They were looking for their Messiah to come riding in on a white horse with a great army and wipe out the Roman rule and any other, any other earthly establishment that kept them down. They were looking for a Messiah, a Savior. They were good Jews. And this Jesus, Peter says, is the Messiah. Where's his white horse? Where's his army? Where's his kingly look and, and position. But Peter believed all of his heart. I mean, he had to have. He left his fisherman job, his nets. He left all of his belongings there on the shore and followed Jesus because Jesus said, from now on, you'll fish for men. He left all of that to follow Jesus. And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus was so impressed with that answer. He said, really, we've been calling you Simon all these years. But from now on, I'm going to call you Petros, Peter, the rock. Because it's on faith like that, Peter. It's on the confession of faith like that, that I can build my church. People who believe that I am the Christ, the son of the living God, will be my church and will do my work in the world. And Peter boldly confessed that that night. And it was several weeks later where that same Peter, who so boldly confessed Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God, denied Jesus three times around a campfire with just a small group of people. While Jesus was on trial in the building next to them, he's out there huddled around the fire with others. And a little girl even says, you were with Jesus. I saw you. He said, no, I wasn't. You don't know what you're talking about. He did that three times. This same Peter who confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, then failed Jesus three times. But that's not the end of the story. 50 days later or 52 days later, 53, Thursday night, Easter Sunday, and then 50 days after that, the day of Pentecost, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost along with 119 others who are in the upper room. And Peter goes out of there with them full of the Holy Spirit, teaching and preaching and testifying the gospel in languages that they never even learned. The Holy Spirit enabled them to tell the story of Jesus in languages they had never learned and enabled people in the city that day to hear the gospel message in their own language. Peter came out. Not only did he testify individually to people, he eventually got up in front of the whole city. And it wasn't just the local residents in Jerusalem that day. It was the festival of Pentecost. And so there were Jewish pilgrims from all over the Mideast who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate this religious holiday. And he got up in front of all those people, locals and foreigners, and proclaimed the message of Jesus boldly 
having been filled with the Holy Spirit. So he goes from boldly confessing Christ, probably around a disciple's campfire, to denying Jesus three times around another fire. Now he's filled with the fire of the Holy Spirit and he preaches the good news and 2,000 people are converted to the way of Jesus in that one day, in that one sermon. Can you imagine? Filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the same Peter. And so he's a natural born leader in this early church in the book of Acts. And so Herod thinks, well, I already got James. He was one of Jesus' close followers. Now I'll get Peter. Who do you think was next in line? Watch out, John, right? If I was John, I would have gotten out of town as soon as I could. But Peter gets arrested. And next verse, after arresting Peter, Herod put him in prison, handing him over to, the, to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Herod didn't want to take any chances. I'm putting him in jail, and I'm going to have 16 people guard him. Four squads of four soldiers each. That's a pretty big detail for one little prisoner. Taking no chances, Herod thought he knew what he was doing. And he didn't want to bring him out immediately because this Jewish holiday of Passover was going on. And so he waited until after that. And Peter was kept in prison, but look at this. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The church was earnestly praying to God for him. Is there anybody you're earnestly praying for right now? I mean, earnestly, sincerely, passionately, like, oh, you know that verse in Romans where it says sometimes the Holy Spirit prays for us because our own groanings and our own words just aren't enough. We, we don't even know how to put into words what we're asking God to do, what the desire of our heart is, what our burden is. And it's kind of like, we're praying and the words won't come, but in our mind we're thinking, oh Lord, you know what I need. And the Holy Spirit just kind of takes over. I'm not talking about speaking in tongues or any weird stuff. I'm just talking about God understanding the depth of our emotion and our burden. And the Holy Spirit identifying with us at our point of need and taking those burdens to God. The church was earnestly praying to God for Peter. And there are people, folks, that need our earnest prayers today. They may be members of your own family. They may, be, they may be former members of our church. They may be people you work with, people you come in contact with on a regular basis. And we need to cry out to God earnestly for them, that God will minister to them and bring them to, to Christ and, and bless their lives in a way they've never experienced before. Are you earnestly praying for anybody? The church was earnestly praying for Peter the night before he was to go on trial before Herod. He had already executed James, what was going to happen to Peter. So the, the church, that's the believers, and we know there were at least by now, let's see, 7,120 of them. Say, so where'd you get that math, Pastor Mike? Well, 2,000 
came to know Christ on Pentecost. Later, it says the number was up to about 5,000. So I'm putting those two together in the original 120 in the upper room. So we're at least up to 7,120 by now. But I don't think all of them were praying at the same time in the same place for Peter. But there was a good prayer meeting going on. And we'll, we'll see it was a pretty good sized prayer meeting in just a moment. They're earnestly praying to God for Peter. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. So not only is in a jail cell, which is probably like a dungeon, not only does he have chains on his wrists, he's not chained, his two wrists aren't chained to each other. He's chained to a guard over here and a guard over there. Now, I know jail's not supposed to be comfortable, but that's really uncomfortable. How can you sleep chained to two guys? And Peter is sleeping that way. Apparently, he's not well-dressed because in a minute, we're going to find out that he has to get up, put on his sandals and his garment. But he's sleeping between two guards. So the 16 guards, two of them were right there chained to Peter. And there were sentries standing guard at the entrance. And here's what happened. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Stop right there. Whenever God shows up, there's light. Have you ever gone through a dark place in your life? And when God finally broke through or when you let him do what he wanted to do, it's like the lights turned on, the burden lifted. What seemed to be so dark was now flooded with light. It's like, wow, your whole attitude changed <clears throat> because you knew God was there through his Holy Spirit. The first words that we know God ever said, I, I think he spoke a lot of words way before that, but the Bible tells us the first words of creation were, let there be light. When God shows up, things light up. And the angel came and the light shone in the cell. They didn't have lights like we think of. If they had any light in that cell at all, it was a candle or a torch on the wall. And chances are in the middle of the night, there was no light at all, as dark as can be. And the angel struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Now, don't let that just fly right past you. Moms, have you ever tried to wake up a teenage boy? Teenage boys, have you ever tr had somebody try to wake you up? It's not a fun, it's not a fun, errand to, fun errand to go on. You don't just open the door and say, honey, time to get up and close the door. You don't say, I think I've heard your snooze do three times already. I'd like to see you at the breakfast table in 10 minutes. No, you go in and you rouse that person from their sleep. Sometimes you do that. Sometimes you shake them by the shoulders. In worst case scenario, you pour a little water on their face. I mean, think about, think about this. How good was Peter sleeping? The lights have already come on the light, and he's still not awake, the angel has to shake him on the side, right? Now you talk about trust and faith in the midst of difficult circumstances. Peter knows he's going on trial the next morning. He knows that his friend James has already been executed and he's sound asleep in a jail cell. How does someone do that? Only when you know Jesus and can trust him. And he may have gotten the message that people were praying for him. 
But the angel had to rouse him awake. And the angel said, quick, get up. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. You know why that's important? Because he couldn't have gotten up otherwise. He was chained to two dead lugs that were sleeping on the floor with him probably. How do you get up when you're chained to two guards? The chains fell off. You know what I think would be cool? If God would have made the two chains that fell off Peter hooked to each other so the guards were connected. That would have been pretty nice. But we don't read that that happened, but it, it could happen. And the chains miraculously fell off. And then what happened? The angel said to him, put on your clothes and your sandals. So we don't know what their jail uniform was, but the angel said, put on your street clothes. That's good news. I need street clothes because I'm going out on the street. Yay. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Now, I don't know if that's so he could hide his face. So all the news cameras wouldn't know who was stepping out of jail, you know, about that time. Or if it was cold outside. But the angel said, put your cloak around you and follow me. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision or a dream since he had been sound asleep. Peter, they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened by itself and they went through it. Think of that. Now, I'm old enough that I still remember the first time I ever walked up to a grocery store and the door opened by itself. You young people can't imagine it happening any other way. I can remember a lot of times when I pushed and the sign right there said, pull. (laughs) This door won't open, right? That happens all the time. But the first automatic doors, some of you people my age or older will remember, it wasn't an electronic motion sensor. It was some deal in the floor mat. They had mats out in front of the store. And when you stepped on it, that made the door open. There was a wire under the mat and it caused the door to open. So you could trick it. You know, you could walk over here and walk around there or you could do that and not go. And and I did that a few times. But now they've got those sensors up there, motion detectors. And they see you coming and the doors are supposed to open. Supposed to. If they don't, (laughs) that's always fun, isn't it? I did that yesterday. I went out the exit and the sensor wasn't on the exit side. So. And the gate automatically opened. Think of that. How many miracles are we seeing in this story already? The gate opens by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Okay, you're a block away from the jail. You should be okay now. <laughs> they haven't found us yet. You're free to go, Peter. And look where he goes. Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. You can understand that. And when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Let me just give you this. I didn't come up with this stuff on my own. I'm not smart enough. But Bible scholars believe that this Mary ran the upper room. That's the best way to say it. Either she owned it and let Jesus and his disciples use it a lot, or she was the director of catering and operations for the upper room that someone else owned, or it was her own house. 
But there was an upper room that Jesus and the disciples used many times. Remember, they had the Last Supper there. They were meeting there on Easter night with the doors and windows locked when Jesus suddenly appeared to them. They were meeting there the next Sunday night when Thomas had said, I won't believe it till I see it. So the next Sunday night, Jesus did the same thing, showed up again in the upper room, right? They were in the upper room when the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. This was a great place, the upper room. And Bible scholars believe that Mary, the mother of John Mark, ran the place. Now, this Mary isn't totally unfamiliar to us because one of the gospels says on the morning of the resurrection, among the ladies who went to the tomb, remember with the herbs and spices to anoint Jesus' body? Among those was, and the other Mary. Have you ever read that? Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and the other Mary. There she is, Mary. She didn't get enough press as far as I'm concerned. She was always there and always helping and always serving when the disciples gathered in the upper room. And her son, John Mark, Bible scholars believe he's the guy that followed the disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane after the Last Supper. And when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, have you ever read the one gospel where it says that a young man ran from the garden naked? They think that was John Mark because he was like a junior high or middle school kid that was always hanging around Jesus and the disciples because his mother was serving them. And it's the same John Mark who went on one of the missionary journeys with the apostle Paul. Think of that. And so Peter's saying, where can I go? I'm out of jail now. Nobody knows where I am. I don't know where to go. It's the middle of the night. What should I do? I'll go to the upper room. Don't miss that, folks. He went back to a place he knew he would be safe, he would be loved, he would be re-energized. He went back to a place where he had had several mountaintop experiences. He went back to his roots, so to speak, where he knew things were right. He went back to the upper room. How many times in your spiritual life have you had to go back to this place of prayer called the altar? How many times have you had to go back to your bedside and say, Lord, I need you. I need a new touch from God. I need a new infilling of your Holy Spirit. How many times have you had to go back to the place where you knew you'd be loved and rejuvenated? I believe that's what Peter did. I don't know where else to go. I'll go to the upper room. Isn't that great? And he gets there, he knocks at the outer entrance, which one version calls the outside gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. Now, you know what that tells me? Not only were the disciples in there with the doors and windows locked on the day of the resurrection, but even this group of Christians was praying in there with the doors locked. Why? Because they thought we could be next. They might come and get us because of our belief in Jesus. And he had to knock on the door and a little girl, we think she was a young girl, answered the door. Now, why was she available? Because if she was young, she wasn't into that prayer stuff, right? <laughs> she was probably easily distracted. They've already prayed for like three hours. I'm, I, you know, once I say, now I'll lay me down to sleep, the Lord's prayer and God is good, God is great. I don't know what else to pray, Right? 
So Rhoda was easily distracted while all these Christians were praying earnestly for Peter. And she goes to answer the door. Who is it? It's Peter. She doesn't open the door. She runs back inside. And she tells the people, Peter is at the door. Now, have you ever been in a prayer service where people are really praying? Not just one person leading the prayer, but everybody praying. Now, we know that the upper room could hold at least 120 because that's how many were in there on the day of Pentecost. So there's a big group of people and they're all praying. There's this cacophony, is that the right word, of sound? I mean, it's like a roar. They're all praying in to God, and he's sorting out all the prayers. He's hearing them all. There's a, a, a noise, and she's going, hey, Peter's at the door. Oh, Lord, bless Peter. You know we need you to deliver him. He's going on trial tomorrow. Shh, we're praying. No, Peter's at the door. Lord, Peter needs a miracle. We know you can do it. Help us, Lord, increase our faith. Peter's at the door. We're praying for Peter. Don't bother us right now. We're trying to get God to do something. Peter's at the door. Finally, she convinces them. You're out of your mind, they kept, they told her. When she kept insisting, they said it must be his angel. Why did they think that? Maybe they thought the trial had been moved up and Peter had already been arrest, well, arrested, but convicted and executed. And now his angel's coming to see them. Peter kept on knocking, and when they finally opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Give me your best astonished look. Peter's at the, it is Peter. Are you an angel? They probably grabbed him by the shoulders. Somebody probably, Peter, you okay? I don't know if they did high fives back then, but they probably gave a few hugs and handshakes. It really is Peter in the flesh. He's been delivered. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet. Why do you have to do that? Well, if there were 120 or more and they're all excited, yay, God, you answered the prayer. Look at this, it really is Peter. Peter goes, come on, quiet down for a minute, second grade, right? He finally gets them to be quiet and he describes everything that the Lord did to bring him out of prison. And here's where he says, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this. And he left and went to another place. Remember I told you there were two Jameses? One was James, the brother of John. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. You say, Jesus had half-brothers, half-siblings? Well, he certainly didn't have any full brothers or sisters. I mean, think about it. Who was his dad? God, the Holy Spirit. But they had the same mother, right? Mary had more children than just Jesus by Joseph, her husband. But Jesus wasn't conceived by Joseph. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So he had half brothers and sisters. And among those was James, who probably didn't believe in Jesus. Now, I know he believed Jesus existed because he lived in the same house with him. It was his older brother. But he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah because we don't read anywhere in the Gospels that his brother James followed him or gave any credibility to what Jesus was doing. But after the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, we not only see James 
believing in his brother Jesus as the Messiah, James becomes a leader in the church. In fact, he becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And so Peter says, I know our buddy James has already died, but James, who's in charge around here, needs to get the message that God has miraculously delivered me. And then look at this little note here at the end. In the morning, there was no small commotion. That's good poetry, and no small commotion. What's that mean? There was a big deal, right, among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod made a thorough search, did not find Peter, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. So there was an execution that day. It just wasn't Peter. It was 16 others. Kind of sad. It just shows again how ruthless Herod really was. Great story, great application, even to our lives today in the 21st century. What is God trying to say to us through this passage? I think one thing he's trying to tell us is that there are impossible situations in life. Say, that's nothing new, Pastor. Well, if you've never had an impossible situation, just be patient, you'll have one. The longer we live, the more impossible situations we face. Things that we can't change, things we can't do anything about. Sometimes those impossible situations are the consequences of choices we've made or actions we've taken. But many times those impossible situations are not our fault at all. It's just part of life. It just happens. And you, I know in your mind already you're trying to think or you're immediately thinking. You're not trying to think. Things are coming to your mind that have been impossible situations in your life. Maybe you're going through a situation like that right now. Life brings impossible situations. Bad things do happen to good people. In our context, I even have to say this. Bad things happen to God's people. Peter was God's man. He hadn't done anything wrong. He was obeying the Lord, but he was arrested and put in jail. And the possibility was that he would be executed. Why do bad things happen to God's people? Because we're human. Because we live in a fallen world. Because life's not always fair. It's not God's fault. It's man's fault. Man's the one that chose sin rather than an obedience back in the Garden of Eden. We're all born with that sinful nature that that bends us more toward sin than it does toward God. And we need the power of the Holy Spirit to break that bond so we can move in God's direction. But God can fix impossible situations. Here they were dealing with this antagonistic attitude toward them as believers in Jesus. And look at this, folks. They were not only being persecuted by the government, by a King Herod, they were being persecuted by the religious establishment of their day, the Jews. The Jews felt like these followers of Jesus were goofballs, dreamers. By this time, as I said, there were several thousand followers of Jesus, but the mainstream people viewed them as a cult, a brainwashed bunch of misfits. Kind of how... Some of us remember those who were duped into following Jim Jones in Guyana 40 years ago and the Jonestown suicide tragedy. 
Herod was a tyrant. He was an insecure people pleaser. He was a godless disaster of a ruler. He had already had James put to death, and now Peter may face the same thing. Let me just throw this in for a minute. In the third and fourth chapter of the book of Acts, Peter and John, this same Peter, they're going to the temple for afternoon prayer one day, and they encounter a beggar who is placed at the gate to the temple every day. And the beggar probably has his own system and his own style and his own way of doing it. He probably has some kind of container there where he's asking for donations. I don't know if they had scrolls back then that they had etched on, you know, we'll work for food. He wouldn't work. He was crippled. He couldn't work. Anything will help. Maybe that's what it would have said. And Peter and John walk by, and because he hears footsteps, the man just says, alms for the poor, anything will help. Peter and John stop right there and say to the man, look at us. Now, he's probably a very insecure person. He probably doesn't have many friends many relationships. He's probably staring down all the time as he sits there by the temple. And they say, look at us. I heard one preacher say, the reason he said that was he was saying, look at us. Do we look like we have any money? We're poor followers of Jesus. But I think he wanted to make eye contact with the man. Look at us. Look up. And then he said, we don't have any money. But what we do have, we'll give it to you. And he took the man's hand and he said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man had to respond. The man could have just dropped his hand. But I I see the man pulling on Peter's hand just with enough strength for Peter to pull him up. And the Bible says immediately his legs were strengthened and he was walking and leaping and praising God. And he walked with them into the temple and he disrupted the afternoon prayer time with his praise to God for the miracle he had received. And so many people gathered around this crippled man. Isn't he the man that's always sitting outside? How is he walking? And Peter interrupted, the man had already interrupted, but Peter took advantage of the situation to preach a message about Jesus right there in the Jewish temple courts. Now think about it. That would be like someone coming in here today and saying, out of the way, Pastor Mike, I want to tell these people about Allah and Muhammad. And we'd say, what? You don't don't have any place in here. You're not welcome here. Get out. That's really what Peter did. He gets up in front of all those people that have gathered around the crippled man and says, let me tell you by what name he's been healed. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then he wasn't very diplomatic. He said, whom you crucified. (laughs) <laughs> you bunch of dogs. I told him in the first service, he said, whom y'all crucified. Because I lived in West Virginia and, and Tennessee for a long time. So it has to be plural. Y'all crucified him. You arrested him. You put him on trial. And then you executed him on a cross. But God raised him up and he's still able to work miracles. And it's by his name and his power that this man is now healed. They detained Peter and John. They they didn't quite arrest them, but they took them into custody and took them before the religious leaders. And the first question they asked them was, who gives you the authority to preach around here? You know what their answer was? They said, you'll have to decide whether we should obey you or God. 
Who do you think we're going to obey? God. And they said, well, you shouldn't speak in that name anymore. And Peter says, we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard and experienced. It just keeps coming out. (laughs) Wouldn't it be great if every Christian who knows Jesus had that same attitude? I cannot help but talk about Jesus, what he's done in my life, how he saved me from a life of sin, how he gives me power and strength each, each day, how he guides my life, how he blesses me. I can't help but speak about it. And they told him, well, be quiet. You can't preach that way anymore. And they were amazed. And here's what they said about Peter and John. They knew that these men had been with Jesus. Can the people around you tell that you've been with Jesus? Not just to a church service, but you've spent time with him, getting to know him, building a relationship with him, serving him, living for him. These men have been with Jesus. So life gives us some impossible situations, but God knows right where you are and he knows what you're going through. I I heard a new contemporary, uh, well, I guess if it's new, it'd have to be contemporary. I heard a new praise chorus this week and it talked, it had the word 8 million in it. And Becky said, I think that was only supposed to be 1 billion. Did I say billion or million? It said 8 billion. And it said, I can't even remember the song now. It's, I, had never, I had never heard it before. Maybe some of you know it from Christian radio. And it says, eight billion. And she said, I think that's a typo on the screen. It should only say one billion. I said, no, I think it says eight billion because there are nearly eight billion people on earth today. So I get my phone out and I Google world's population. It's 7.7 billion, almost eight billion. So whoever wrote the song was building in for a, some future growth. They're wanting their song to hang around long enough to hit 8 billion, right? And so what it was saying was God has enough blessing or, or enough help for 8 billion for every single one of us. Think of that, folks. There are 8 billion of us on this planet and he knows you. He knows what you're going through. He, he is aware of who you are and where you are and what's going on. The Bible says he even even has the hairs of our head numbered. I know some of you are helping him out with that, making it a lot easier. (laughs) But that's how much he knows us. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he cares. So there are impossible situations in life, but God knows right where you are. God knows who you are, and he knows what you need. He knew where Peter was. Peter wasn't in such a dungeon that God couldn't find him. His word says he will never leave us or forsake us. He doesn't always take the problems away. And we can all testify to that. But he's promised he'll go through the problems with us. Praise his name. And the third truth I want you to know today is that God often answers prayer differently than we ask. Or in a different way than we would do it. Oh God, you know what I need and I know what I need. So here's what you need to do. Answer my prayer like this. God doesn't always answer prayer like that. I believe God answers every prayer. Say, wait a minute, pastor. I've prayed some prayers God never answered. Well, it depends on what you mean by an answer. I think sometimes God answers prayer by saying, no. It's an answer. 
I remember just wearing my mom out about some things when I was a teenager. Just give me an answer, I would say. And she'd say, okay, no. If you have to have an answer that fast and I don't have time to talk, think about it or talk to your dad about it or understand all the details, then the answer is no. If you want an answer, no. I've, I've soon learned not to do that. I'd say, well, will you talk to dad about it? We think about it. And then I'd cut things out of the magazines or paper that showed exactly what I wanted and how much it cost and all that. And I'd paste them on the refrigerator. And, and so she wouldn't buy the wrong kind of tennis shoes or, you know, that kind of stuff. But if sometimes God's answer is just no. We say, well, that's not fair. How do you know? How do you know if it's fair or not? Do you see the big picture? Do you see around this curve and around this bend? Do you, do you see from God's perspective what's best? Sometimes he says no. And we have to accept that. Sometimes, thank the Lord, his answer is yes. And he just lavishes us with whatever we've prayed about and whatever we need. And he says, yes, I love you that much. Here it is. Yes. And sometimes he looks at us and says, hmm, you change first. Say, what? You mean his answers are conditional? Sometimes they are. Sometimes he says, you're not mature enough. You're not ready for that. You haven't paid the price long enough. You're not smart enough for this answer yet. You change first. There's some things in your life that need correction, some things that need forgiven. You change first, and then I'll think about it. Your parents ever do that? You're not ready for that. We'll talk about it later. There's some changes. If you want us to do that, there's some changes you need to make. God deals with us the same way. But he can and does answer every prayer. It may be no, it may be yes. It may be you change first and it may just be wait. Just be patient, wait. I'll get around to that later. God often answers prayer differently than we ask or than how we would do it. But if you're facing some impossible situation in your life, Jesus can fix that. He really can. That may sound like a dismissive, cliche, trite answer. But I really believe with all my heart, Jesus can fix it. He really can. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. In other words, he can do more than we can ask or imagine. He can fix that. Well, look at Peter. First, God sends an angel. An angel. Angels don't just show up all the time, do they? An angel appears in that cell. A light floods the place. That's a miracle. His chains fall off, and the guards don't even wake up. They walk past some other guards who don't even see them. The gate, the huge iron gate opens by itself. Well, not by itself, by God's power. Another miracle. He's out on the street. He thinks, I'll go to the upper room. And finds out that they're already there praying for him. He knocks on the gate or the door until Rhoda answers it. And finally, they all come and receive him and celebrate together. Well, let me just throw this in. God opened the big iron gate of the prison, right? Why didn't God open the little gate at the upper room? Why did Peter have to stand there knocking? Uh, hello, Peter's out here. Anybody home? He didn't open it himself. It was probably locked from the inside. Why didn't God open that gate? Could it be that sometimes 
God won't do for us what we could do for ourselves. Now, hold it right there. I'm not saying God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. Some people think it is. If it is in the Bible, it's in the book of uh, Hezekiah, chapter 83, verse 6. Well, first of all, there is no Hezekiah, and there's very few books that have 83 chapters, right? So God helps those who help themselves is not in the Bible. But sometimes God won't do for us what we can do for ourselves. He's already given us a certain amount of wisdom, a certain amount of strength, a certain amount of ability. Some things we're smart enough and we ought to be willing enough to do some things on our own under his lordship, but do them on our own. So Peter waited for someone else to open that gate. God opened the great big gate, but he wanted someone else to open this little gate. And the praying church, those who were praying earnestly for him, came and received him and welcomed him back and praised the Lord together in celebration. So what does all this say to us today? It's pretty simple. It's basic. We need to pray. Pray for one another. Pray for our loved ones. Pray for ourselves. Pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need to be people of prayer. We need to pray without ceasing. You know what that is? That's an attitude of prayer. When you're driving your car and your thoughts are about God, when you're getting ready to go to bed or already lying down in bed, your mind goes to God. You, you review your day and you see how God's worked in your day and you thank him for it and you commit any mistakes you've made to him and ask for his help so you don't do those again. And if there's any sin in your life, you bring that to God and confess it and ask for his forgiveness and for the power of his Holy Spirit to help you to overcome that struggle and that sin. You have to pray. We have to be people of prayer. And then we have to obey. God will make his will known to us. Are we willing and ready to say, yes, I'll obey you, Lord. Because if we pray, we're going to hear from God. He's going to speak to us in his own sweet way. But we have to be willing to respond to that by obeying him. And then we have to be faithful. You know, there are times we go through the valley, the, the, what's the dark night of despair or the dark night of the soul. We go through rough times and we're tempted to say, well, I'm not where I should be spiritually. I, I, don't, I shouldn't go to church. I don't want to go to church. I'll feel uncomfortable there. Everybody's so happy and, you know, I, I'm just not there right now. Folks, I think we need to be faithful even when we're in the valley as we are in the mountaintop. Be faithful. Go back to the upper room like Peter did. Come back to the place where you're loved and where you can hear the word of the Lord and where you can have the fellowship of his family. Be faithful in every area of your life. Anything God shows you, respond to it obediently and trust him. Trust the Lord that he knows what is best and that he's at work in your life. And then expect his response. I I thought about saying expect a miracle. But it's not always something that seems so miraculous. Sometimes it's just the faithfulness of God and his providential answer to what we're going through. Expect God's response in your life. You know, when I have a need, um, let's say I needed a million dollars. Now, I know some rich people that have a million dollars. 
But chances are, they don't know I need a million dollars. They don't know. And even in a case of a millionaire knowing that I needed a million dollars, he knew about it. What if he doesn't care? Yeah, I know Mike needs a million dollars, but I don't care. Doesn't bother me a bit that Mike needs a million dollars. I mean, can you think of somebody rich, maybe that you've never even met? Even if I send a letter saying, I need a million dollars, they say, okay, now I know he needs a million, but I don't care. But what if, that, what if there's someone that knows I need a million and cares that I need a million, but they don't have a million? They can't do anything about it. But see, the thing is, God knows. He cares. He has just what I need. And he will do it. You know, it can stop anywhere along the place. They don't know about it. They don't care. They don't have it. They won't do it. But with God, all four of those fall into place. He knows, he cares, he can, and he will. Think of that. He can fix that in your life. He really can. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, I thank you for your word today. I thank you that whenever we open your word and study it, and when we try to hear what you're saying to us, you'll speak. And then it's our job to respond. And so I pray that as our communion servers come, and as we open the table of the Lord, we also open the altars, these wooden rails where we can kneel and pray. And I pray, Lord, that whatever we're facing today, it may be our own jail cell. Maybe something that binds us, something that has us under its control. It may be a a difficult situation we're going through that really seems impossible. It may be a relationship. It may be finances. It may be health. It may be a job-related problem. Whatever impossible situation we're facing, we can bring that to you. And I believe in many ways it's more important that we use the altar to pray today than it even is for us to receive the Lord's Supper but we can do both and we can tell you exactly where we are and what we need. Even though you already know about it, you like for us to confess that we're humble and dependent upon you. So help us, Lord, whatever we're going through, whatever we're facing, to remember that you're a miracle working God and that Jesus can fix that and help us to take that good news to others. I pray, Lord, that you'll bless these gifts of communion that we consecrate to you right now, the bread which represents your broken body, the unfermented wine which represents your blood poured out for our salvation. As we receive those gifts and celebrate all that you've done for us, or as we pray at the altar and bring you our needs and our difficult situations, we know that we can have an encounter with you through this means of grace. So we pray that your presence will be with us in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.